Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, foreign policy's editor-in-chief and the host of FP Live. There are a lot of great world affairs podcasts out there and from time to time, we'll share some of them with you. Global Dispatches recently interviewed Interpol's Secretary General Jürgen Stock. We thought you might like to check it out. So listen to their episode, How Interpol Works, with the Secretary General Jürgen Stock. Take a listen. We have to consider, again, that the criminals are constantly monitoring the global landscape for opportunities to attack our societies. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Rice University's Masters of Global Affairs. Rice's Global Affairs program offers students rigorous coursework that compels high standards of scholarship and offers practical training for careers in government, the private sector, and international organizations. Graduates are ready to tackle the world's toughest challenges with vision and understanding. Now accepting applications for fall 2024 enrollment, please visit mga.rice.edu for more information. Interpol is an international organization with very high name recognition, but few people, even in the foreign policy community, have a decent understanding of how it works. As it happens, before I became a foreign policy journalist, I did an internship at Interpol's headquarters in Lyon, France. And it is there that I caught up with my guest today, Interpol Secretary General Jürgen Stock. He is a former German police officer who is entering his 10th and final year as the Secretary General. In our conversation, we discuss some broad trends in transnational organized crime that he has witnessed in his tenure and how Interpol is evolving to meet those challenges. Interpol is formally known as the International Criminal Police Organization. It actually predates the United Nations by over 20 years, and this year is commemorating its 100th anniversary. Interpol was established a century ago and still exists today to support multilateral cooperation among the police agencies of its now 195 members. Contra popular perception, sometimes conveyed in movies and the like, Interpol is not actually a police force itself. 
There's no such thing as an Interpol agent, certainly not someone with ninja-like skills who travels the world chasing art thieves, gun traffickers, and the like. Rather, I tend to think of Interpol as a platform that law enforcement agencies of its member states can use when they want to share information or cooperate across borders. This can include, for example, linking national criminal databases like fingerprints with that of other member states. It can also include cooperating on synchronized police operations to bust international organized crime networks that traffic in guns, people, or do cyber crimes. Interpol exists as an independent organization to facilitate that kind of cooperation. In our conversation, Jürgen Stock kicks off with some examples of recent Interpol-facilitated operations that exemplify the organization's role in international affairs. He then discusses broad trends in international organized crime and the impact of geopolitics on Interpol's work. Now, Interpol is essentially an apolitical organization. Most of its work is in support of police going after ordinary crimes like murder or car theft rings. But it is a member state-led organization, so it is not immune to geopolitics or international rivalries, and Jürgen Stock explains how Interpol tries to stick to its core mission. My own stint at Interpol was both 21 years ago and brief, but I have been following the organization's work ever since, and I'm glad to bring this conversation to you. A couple of quick announcements before we start. First, if you are new to the show, welcome. Please be sure to subscribe or follow Global Dispatches wherever you get your podcasts. Global Dispatches is the longest-running independent international affairs show We've been at this for 10 years now, bringing you two episodes a week every week, often shining a spotlight on undercovered global stories, and always featuring interviews with interesting people in international affairs. And if you are listening to this contemporaneously, next week, the week of September 18th, marks the opening of the United Nations General Assembly and from Monday through Thursday of that week, we will be bringing you daily updates from the 78th United Nations General Assembly. I am really excited for this special daily series. We've been doing this for a few years now. I've gotten great feedback from listeners about how you are able to connect with all that is happening at the United Nations and throughout New York during this most important week of international diplomacy. So stay tuned for our special daily UNGA episodes. For now, here is my conversation with Interpol Secretary General Jürgen Stock. First, thank you for joining me, Mr. Secretary General. Thank you. Interpol is an organization with a very high name recognition. Everyone's heard of Interpol, but precious few actually know much about how Interpol actually works. So by way of explaining Interpol, can I have you describe a recent operation that you believe provides a good demonstration of Interpol doing what it was designed to do? Indeed. Interpol is a kind of world-famous brand, but maybe also amongst the least understood international organizations. So happy to explain that a little bit more in detail, what we are doing. And uh, just starting 
with an operation that we have been conducting a couple of weeks ago, where we connected more than 20 countries around the world in targeting illicit trafficking of firearms. It was an operation called Trigger 9, again, aimed at dismantling criminal networks who are dealing with illegal weapons. And we have been able to organize and coordinate these activities, not only across borders, but across continents. And the interesting thing here was that we have not been able to support member countries in seizing more than 8,000 firearms that were recovered, but also in dismantling activities in regards to drug trafficking. Member countries were able to seize more than 200 tons of drugs, more than 400 tons of precursor substances, which shows the dimension of today's transnational organized crime on the one hand, and the role of Interpol, on the other hand, in connecting police for a safer world, our 195 member countries that we are bringing together. We are providing a platform where they can share relevant information. And as you know, Interpol this year is celebrating its centenary, 100 years of Interpol. And this basic mission of the organization, connecting police and providing a safe and secure platform for collaboration has not been changing. Of course, we know the world has been changing a lot since 2023, but the basic mission of Interpol is still the same. And perhaps in a time of globalization, also of crime, that mission is more important than ever. So can I maybe have you go just a little deeper into the Trigger 9 operation in order to kind of demonstrate just operationally how Interpol is able to help national police kind of connect the dots. So what was the transnational organized criminal group that was trafficking in these arms? And where did this seizure occur? And what were some of the major countries involved? It was primarily in Central and South America, where we have been conducting this operation. Of course, a central role is being played by our so-called National Central Bureaus, which means that every of our 195 member countries is having a National Central Bureau, let's say, as a single point of contact for Interpol. We are planning these operations together with the NCBs based on our threat assessment that we are putting together, the information we are receiving from various sources, trying again to identify major criminal groups who are operating in certain parts of the world, identifying the major trafficking routes that are being exploited by criminal groups, and then organizing targeted operations that are, again, aimed at dismantling the structure of a criminal network, so hopefully having some impact, again, in pushing this kind of transnational organized crime back, and then, of course, exploiting all the information we are gathering through this operations. It's not just the seizure of drugs or firearms. It is also systematically collecting the intelligence throughout these operations so that we can capture the real complexity of today's transnational organized crime, because this is a major concern actually everywhere around the world, that despite all the efforts and the success stories we are having as an international police community, Many of these organized crime groups, or call them cartels or whatever, are in fact getting stronger, more powerful, more influential in terms of impact 
on the legitimate economy, but also corruption is a big problem all around the world because these groups also try to get influence by infiltrating our societies, public administration, private sector, and even the political level. You made the point that transnational organized criminal groups today are growing in strength. What can Interpol do to stop that growth? How else might member states empower Interpol to rise to the challenge of transnational organized crime today? Maybe I can answer that question with an example. We have been starting three years ago on an initiative from the government of Italy, a project against Drangheta, definitely one of the most dangerous criminal groups in the world, originating in Calabria many decades ago. That's like the successor to the Cosa Nostra or like a competitor, right, to the Cosa Nostra? Yeah, more competitor. More competitor from a particular region, again, Calabria in the south of Italy. And of course, we have seen Italy investing a lot of resources in pushing this group and other groups, mafia-style organized crime groups, back. Many success stories. But nevertheless, Italy considered, despite all the success stories and the efforts that were achieved nationally and through bilateral police cooperation, that group has become stronger. That group has been expanding almost all across the globe now in something like 40 member countries. And Italy said, okay, we are going to use the global platform that Interpol provides. We are supporting a program that invites member countries who are having a problem with Drangheta to perhaps share information amongst each other through Interpol that they have never been sharing before to allow the global law enforcement community to really capture the dimension of Drangheta in 2023, let's say, and, and the years before to raise awareness around the globe. And since this project started three years ago, through these new level of information sharing, member countries, let's say, sitting around the Interpol table, sharing information, and again, identifying the real dimension of Drangheta activities. Today, we've been able to support, meanwhile, more than 40, I think almost 50 arrests of Drangheta kingpins all around the world. Just in the last couple of months, we had a significant number of arrests that Interpol has been supporting all over the world, where the criminals, the Drangheta kingpins, were on the run for 15 years, 20 years, even 25 years, on the one hand. On the other hand, we've been able to tell one or the other country, you are having a problem with Drangheta, but you don't know yet. But we have the information now through this unprecedented sharing of information amongst member countries, that Drangheta is active in your country and you should better join that kind of global coalition against Drangheta. I think this is an example what a truly global platform is about that can help and assist member countries in pushing a truly globally operating criminal group. And Drangheta is just one of many examples back. So is the implication there that the more governments share with Interpol, the more empowered Interpol is to support international cooperation around sort of discrete, say, criminal groups. That is exactly the principle. And we try now to use that successful ICANN model also to other 
criminal groups. Black X is one of the examples. That's the Nigerian group, right? It's West African. West African, yeah. It's one of the groups that are operating there. We see European groups also being active in Central America, in South America. So just a few examples of those groups who are amongst the most powerful around the world. And we typically see, let's say, two groups of these organized crime groups, the ones who are still trying to operate under the radar of law enforcement, if I may say, not making too much noise, no violence on the streets, trying to invest their illicit proceeds of crime in the legitimate economy and becoming stronger, infiltrating administrations, economy, investing a lot in corruption. And on the other hand, those criminal groups that are trying to defend their turf with violence, with shootings on the streets, and more easily being discovered in their criminal activities. But what is definitely the characteristics of both types of organized crime is, again, the dimension, the way in which they undermine the rule of law and can even target whole societies, communities. And that is, again, why we are talking about a national security emergency in many parts of our constituency. So you next year will conclude your 10th year as Interpol Secretary General. I believe you're likely term limited out. So this will be your final year as head of Interpol. What have been some of the large trends in transnational organized crimes that you've seen evolve over the past decade? Yeah, it is indeed a kind of evolution that is going on, but perhaps with the dynamics that I have not seen in my long career that started in 1978 in the police in the German state of Hessen, not very far away from Frankfurt. Um, we have clearly seen that during the pandemic, for instance, where criminal groups very quickly shifted their criminal business model to the new vulnerabilities that COVID-19 brought to our society. So particularly, of course, in that situation of lockdowns, cyber-enabled crime, cybercrime targeting, even the vaccines that were produced or any other vulnerability, the concerns of people, again, very quickly being exploited by criminal groups, all the fake websites that were produced. And we could easily see how quickly these modi operandi shifted from one part of the world to the next one. So this kind of industrial scale targeting that is being done by criminal groups, that is definitely a dynamic which I haven't seen in the past. Of course, the internet helps a lot because that type of crime is still getting stronger. And that is a type of crime where, of course, the criminals do not need to leave their home. They can stay at home. They can target any research institute, hospitals, what we have seen, but even individuals with certain scams that have been happening. Again, the key word here is cyber-enabled crime. On the other hand, international terrorism, unfortunately, is still an issue. And of course, some of the risk factors related to difficult situations in countries around the world, economically difficult climate change, poverty, energy, other crises are stimulating opportunities for criminals. And that is what we clearly see that 
every crisis situation that we are discussing at a global level is being considered by criminals an opportunity to get more, let's say, simply more money and again, attacking our societies on the one hand, but also becoming more influential on the other hand. So again, what we are discussing in the context of a crisis for criminals, that is an opportunity and they are exploiting also every gap we would leave in international police cooperation. And that is why such a unique platform that brings together law enforcement from 195 member countries across political systems, across different legal systems, is more important than ever. Because again, every gap we would leave would be exploited by criminals. So I had not previously given much thought to the idea that climate change may inspire transnational organized criminal groups to take advantage of certain you know, climatic or nat changes in the natural world to illicitly profit. What's an example of that? I mean, an example, of course, could be migration movements triggered by the climate situation in certain parts of the world, that people are simply forced to leave their homes because of the situation in regards to the climate. And such a situation would be exploited, of course, by those trafficking groups that are exploiting desperate people who are looking for better lives in other parts of the world. Environmental crime could be an example where the climate situation in one part of the world is being exploited in the various avenues of environmental crime, which is a very broad spectrum. We have to consider, again, that the criminals are constantly monitoring the global landscape for opportunities to attack our societies. And this also with the support already currently, but even more in the future, by using modern technology, artificial intelligence is also a case in point here, where we already see criminals starting exploiting artificial intelligence in certain cyber-enabled crime activities. And that is the reason why I would like to summarize that Transnational organized crime in almost all parts of the world has become a national security emergency and should be taken very seriously. And again, the only way to push this development back is a strong centralized agency on a global scale, Interpol, where member countries systematically collect information, not only on specific criminal activities, but also crime trends that we help sharing across the world and that we help dismantling the true, the real dimension of transnational organized crime, which member countries with a traditional model of policing that I have been learning when I was a young police officer, you do everything on a bilateral basis, can no longer be captured. You need to have a platform on national level, on regional level, and of course on global level that helps systematically collecting information on crime trends, on crime patterns, on criminal groups that are operating across not only the borders, but across continents, and then to coordinate targeted operations to push these criminal groups back. And that applies for international terrorism, that applies to transnational organized crime, and of course, cybercrime, which is borderless by nature. And of course, in a hyper-connected world, the criminals have unprecedented opportunities to attack critical infrastructures, our economies, and even our private computers. So everyone should take cybersecurity, for instance, really seriously. I'm glad that you brought up the 
global reach of Interpol. As I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking back to my own brief stint as an intern at Interpol headquarters 21 years ago, which in retrospect was a very unique geopolitical moment. It was after the September 11th attacks, but before the U.S.-led invasion and occupation of Iraq. Accordingly, there was just a great deal of unity of purpose among countries large and small and a diverse group of countries to fight terrorism. There was you know, this kind of pervasive sense that we're all on the same side against the threat of non-state actors and terrorists. And that definitely trickled down to international police cooperation. But, you know, 21 years later, today is a, a very different time. We're in an era of major power competition. How has Interpol experienced this geopolitical shift? Yeah, I mean, it's important that Interpol sticks to its basic principles, if I may say, and they interestingly have not been changing since 1923 when Precursor organization was set up, the International Criminal Police Commission in Vienna, where the idea also at that time was leave politics aside. We are focusing on what our constitution, even in today's world, calls so-called ordinary law crime. So let's say criminals without a political motivation, those who simply want to make money. That principle actually has not been changing. And perhaps in today's geopolitical situation, it's more important than ever that we stick to these principles, which means Interpol as a technical police-to-police -police organization. We are not a political organization. We have Article 3 in our constitution that strictly not only prohibits, but strictly prohibits any activity that could be considered a political one, a religious one, a military one, or a racial one. And the independence of the organization is still a key principle and strictly a applying the rule of law within Interpol, because we have a set of, for instance, strict rules on the exchange of relevant police information. We have strict data protection rules been implemented over the last decades, and strictly applying the rule of law within our organization remains key. That means, of course, we are not in a position and we are not allowed, according to our mandate, we have no mandate to police our member countries, if I may say, what they are doing on a domestic level what they might do on a bilateral level between each other. But as soon as member countries decide to do use the Interpol channels, to use our 19 databases, to use our I-24-7 communication system, to use our analytical capabilities, they have to stick to the rules. And the General Secretariat's role is the oversight to strictly ensure that these principles are being applied to, that everybody is respecting these rules. And I think this is why even in today's world of some tensions and changes in the geopolitical dynamics, the organization still works and we still facilitate information exchange even between countries who might have, let's say, diplomatic difficulties or are having no diplomatic ties currently focusing again on ordinary law crime. I mean, are you seeing any changes in requests to use the Interpol database, say from like Russia. Russia presumably still has an active National Central Bureau that Interpol liaison office. Ukraine presumably has still an active National Central Bureau that Interpol liaison office. Are you seeing any sort of differences in how countries are willing to share information 
to prevent, say, adversaries like Russia from accessing that information, even if it's apolitical, it's like a car theft ring, something that you call like an ordinary law crime. Are you seeing those kind of strictures being put on information sharing among national police organizations? Of course, I cannot say that there is no influence on our day-to-day work, that there's no impact on, on the level of information sharing in case a kind of conflict occurs or there's any other kind of situations. There are, of course, then ups and downs. Again, our role in the General Secretary primarily is to avoid that any conflict is being used or our tools and services are being used or even abused for political purposes. That is why in 2016, for instance, I implemented a so-called Notice and Diffusion Task Force. One of our most successful instruments we are using, the so-called Red Notices, are well known. And part of the success of this instrument, why it helps every single year to arrest thousands of criminals around the world, ordinary law criminals, murderers, drug traffickers, those who are exploiting children, abusing children, is that we strictly enforce the rule of not using these tools for political purposes. And of course, here we are investing a lot of resources to ensure compliance of member countries. We have a commission for the control of Interpol files that is an additional kind of appeals body ensuring compliance of the instruments. And our mandate, according to the constitution, is again to keep the channels open even between countries in conflict. But it's then up to our member countries to which extent they are using these channels. This is not up to Interpol because every piece of information that is being transmitted, being processed through Interpol channels remains in the ownership of the country concerned, the source of the information. And the member country at the end of the day decides with whom to share, how intensive to share, which crime areas to share. So there is a kind of shared responsibility And what I can say just from this year's figures, I mean, we have during the last couple of years a steep increase in records being shared with Interpol. Now, more than 130 million records are in our databases. And just this year, 2023, we have already seen almost 5 billion searches in our databases, which means almost 270 searches per second being conducted by our NCBs, at critical border stations, airports, all around the world. And almost one million hits been produced all around the world that are helping investigating crime and arresting criminals and making sure that there is no safe haven for criminals. So a very effective system. Is it perfect? Of course, the answer is no. Of course, we have difficult situations. We have member countries where we see a reduced activity in using our tools and services. But overall, the trend is positive, and that is absolutely required because, as I said earlier, the globalization of crime, there's absolutely no doubt, will continue as well. You mentioned the Red Notice. I'd like to just have you briefly explain the Red Notice to those who are unaware. It is arguably the highest profile Interpol product, and you alluded to in your answer to my previous question that there have been some accusations over the years that countries have sought to abuse the red notice system in order to pursue political ends, in order to go after sort of political opponents as opposed to, you know, ordinary law criminals, car thieves and the like. 
Yeah, I mean, that is exactly why I introduced in 2016 the Notice and Diffusion Task Force, why the organization invested a, a lot of resources in setting up a strong team that is making sure that every single request that comes in here at the General Secretariat is being carefully checked against our rules and regulations that are providing a clear guideline. I mentioned the overarching principle of Article 3. Article 2 of our Constitution requires us to do everything we do in the spirit of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So if there is indication that a certain request for a red notice concerns the freedom of speech, we are not publishing a red notice. We are not publishing a red notice if somebody has been granted a protective status somewhere around the world, for instance, as a refugee. So we also, of course, depend on information that member countries around the world are providing. We are also looking into open source information. We are in contact with NGOs that sometimes are also providing us information, which means we have been setting up throughout the last couple of years a multi-layered system where I would say it's, it's really a robust system that ensures that every single red notice that is being published is compliant with our rules and regulations. And again, I repeat, is it a perfect system? Perfect? Perhaps no, but no system is perfect. I mean, even mistakes happen on a national level in national courts, but the organization has been investing heavily. And this is also being recognized by our member countries, even by NGOs who are saying that was an important investment that Interpol has made. Do we continue looking into our systems where perhaps we see a weak point we need to close? Yes, of course, because at the end of the day, it is the trust in our organization. It's the trust in the compliance of our information because we know that serious action can be taken at the front lines of policing based on the red notice that is being published. And every case where such action would be taken based on a notice which we consider at the end not compliant is one case too many. Lastly, you know, we're speaking at the 100th anniversary of Interpol. Looking ahead, what do you see as some of the key issues that Interpol will be dealing with in the next several years? We'll see more and more a shift into the cyber domain. Here we are seeing another model of organized crime in today's world. Uh, the key word here is cybercrime as a service. You no longer need to be an expert in using these tools. You just approach the underground economy. This is the forum where people just using nicknames, where people offer their, their criminal services, if I may say, from uh, programming, intrusion, cash out, and, and all these different parts of the illicit supply chain, if I may say. Very difficult for law enforcement, also because of anonymization tools that are being used encryption tools that are being used, but we will clearly see that this trend is continuing. Artificial intelligence will provide a new boost by just creating fake identities and all the, those motor operandi that can be further developed by using artificial intelligence in the future. And on the other hand, of course, we will continuously seeing organized crime groups getting stronger in a very flexible way being engaged in classical crime. Drug trafficking is still a major source of income. Environmental crime uh, has become a big criminal market all around the world and other crime areas, financial crime. And we definitely need to get better in going after the illicit procedure of crime. We always say in our speeches, 
we have to target organized crime where it hurts. This is the money. But unfortunately, as a global law enforcement community, we are far away from being successful. The realistic people are saying maybe 2 or 3% of all the criminal assets are being seized by law enforcement. The realists, the more people who have a realistic view say, globally speaking, less than 1% of the illicit proceeds of crime are being confiscated. And if you see the huge amount of money that are being channeled through the global financial system, we definitely have to get better. But again, the way to do that is information. It is again using a global platform like Interpol, and it is strengthening our cooperation with the private sector, because that is where the information sits on a, le on a safe uh, legal framework. But that kind of information exchange for law enforcement is absolutely fundamental to become more successful in going after the money that has been made. Mr. Secretary General, thank you so much for your time. It was great to chat. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. 
everyday ambassador peels back the curtains of high stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.